This Endo Life episode 96. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior and endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast isn't here to replace your current medical treatment and is here for educational purposes only. Today's episode is sponsored by BU. These guys are the makers of the incredible period patches that I love, and also a beautiful organic CBD range, menstrual cup, and chafing cream. And they really are one of the pioneers of natural and really quite revolutionary period care, in my opinion. I have seen these period patches change people's experience of their periods so dramatically and their experience of endometriosis so dramatically and they are really one of the first things that I recommend to my clients if my clients are going through a flare-up or it's taken a while for their symptoms to calm down and for us to implement changes I still want to provide my clients with something that's going to provide relief you know in that current moment And I always recommend BU period patches because I just believe in them so much and they have helped me so much and they're natural and it's just when you are so commonly faced with all of these different drugs that can have side effects, um, they have their place but sometimes you just want a more uh, side effect free option. So um, I absolutely love these patches. They've been helping me through a interstitial cystitis flare up that I've been going through recently. You can find out all about that on Instagram. Um, And if you want to try the BU patches for yourself, you can just head to the link in my show notes or go straight to their website, which is buonline.co.uk. So that's B-E- younline.co.uk. If you are in the US or in Canada, you can actually also order your BU patches from Cult Beauty and they will ship to the US or to Canada. So that's cultbeauty.co.uk. Let me know how you get on with them. Hi guys, I hope you are all safe and well. I'm a, a bit like nasally and sniffy today because is it me or is the hay fever in the UK just like what well, the pollen rather just like insane at the moment? We have a um a mulberry tree right outside our bedroom window and I think I'm really allergic to it, although I didn't react to it last summer or the summer before, so I don't really know why it's so bad at the moment. But um yeah, I'm I'm really <laughs> I'm sneezing a lot and I'm really nasally so um yeah okay so I am finally getting around to recording the SIBO testing episode I'm sorry for the delay as you guys know I've had um health challenges recently and if you kind of want to know more about that I've written um about it on endometriosis news um and I'm sure I'm going to do an episode about it at some point but I'm so I've I've been so pushed for time and tired that 
the idea of going into it in detail feels like very emotionally taxing. But in short, I mean, I've mentioned to you guys before that um, I suspected cortisol dysregulation, which is HPA axis dysfunction. Um, I want to do a whole show on that with a guest if I can. But it's basically your cortisol output is um, messed up. And that's what regulates your body clock, your circadian rhythm. So if your cortisol is higher or lower than it should be, it can cause problems like exhaustion or insomnia if it's high at night when it should be low. And I've, I think I've been suffering this for at least a decade, um, you know, in varying severity over the years and, and having it worse than over the years. And firstly, I didn't address it because I didn't have the education um, or awareness about it. Um, and I've, you know, learned about it in the past, I guess, three years since I've been studying. And I suspected it really strongly when I started studying my anxiety and perfectionism traits and like workaholic traits has made it really hard for me to deal with it because a lot of your recovery from HPA axis dysfunction is you know, real recovery, like very intentional rest, slowing down. Um, and I'm not very good at that. And, um, I think that the past couple of years have really taken it out with, out of me, um, with the issues that we had, at, um, when we moved here to Margate and Chris's, um, you know, Chris's family loss and gosh, so much, um, and trying to fit that all in with studying, and then I, my suspicion is that, you know, I've, I've got a um, malabsorption, so I'm not absorbing nutrients properly. And, um, that was, you know, I got those test results back in Jan and then I did, you know, the low oxalate, low histamine diet. And for whatever reason, my SIBO went crazy, as you guys know, and my, and I haven't kind of fully recovered from that. Um, my, I have really bad bloating like every day now and I had gotten it like lower, lesser before, you know. Um, and so now I think the my ability to absorb nutrients is even lower. And obviously, so your body sees SIBO as an infection. It behaves like an infection, even though it's not an infection. It's an overgrowth of your own bacteria in the wrong place. It behaves like an infection. So, you know, it causes an immune reaction. It causes inflammation. It releases toxins that really affect your um, energy and your brain health, um, amongst many other things. And so I think that's happened and I've had worsening you know, knock on side effects from that. So more fatigue and more brain fog. I'm then like, wasn't already absorbing nutrients. And now I think that's even worse. I suspect, I strongly suspect that I'm like borderline anemic or very low in iron. So I'm getting that um, tested. And I think my HPA axis function has worsened. And your body will, you know, HP axis can be caused by different stresses, whether that's physical actually in the body or um, psychological, you know, life stress. And um, so I think the stress of the SIBO blowing up, the stress of, I mean, you know, barely sleeping since January because of my bladder pain, 
And then the stress of COVID, I don't know if I just said that, but like really worrying, like, how am I going to keep this endo life going um, throughout this? I think just tipped that HPA axis dysfunction even further. And I think my cortisol output is very low. Um, and my anxiety is very high. So it's just been a perfect storm. And I've gone into this way more detail than I thought I would. As always, this is me. Like always know if I say I'm going to do a quick overview or a short thing, it's, that's never the case. I'm lying. It will never happen. But um, yeah, so I think that's what's been happening. And it's knocked me for six. And um, I'm learning how to recover um, and put things in practice. And, you know, I'm going to bed pretty much straight away after work. And um, that's been really helping. And I'm pretty much staying in bed for most of the weekends at the moment. And again, that's been helping. I have, I, I am, I am feeling better, um, but I don't want to get ahead of myself because I know that this is going to be quite a um, long recovery, especially because I don't think I'm going to be treating my SIBO until September um, or maybe October because I don't want to, I don't want to do the treatment whilst I'm coaching because I might have something called die off which is a reaction to the SIBO dying and it can be really tough. So I don't want to be like unwell with that whilst I'm coaching. Um, so yeah, so given that like the SIBO is probably going to be present until that point, well, and it will be present for a while because the treatment's going to take a while. Um, you know, I think I'm in for a long journey. So I don't want to like be like, oh, okay, I'm feeling a bit brighter today. I'm going to go on a like, you know, a big long walk or something so I am you know still a bit quiet in our Facebook group and still a bit quiet on social media and that's been like that on and off for years and I think that's because I've been dealing with this HPA access function and dysfunction for a really long time and there are just seasons where it feels worse so then I go a bit quiet and I'm in one of those at the moment so anyway that was just a bit of an update because I want to be honest about where I am in my journey um because yeah it's our healing journey is linear uh linear it's not linear <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say and um I think the life of someone with a chronic illness is very multi-layered so um it's not normally just endo on its own so today I want to talk about um, how to test for SIBO. Lots of you guys have asked me how to do it and where you can get the test. So to start with, in the UK, GPs don't generally tend to order SIBO tests. They don't tend to know what SIBO is. SIBO is like endo of the GI world. Um, it's very much um, misunderstood and under underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed in the medical community. Um, most doctors don't know what it is. It's, it's been the past decade that it's come out. There's only a couple of specialists in the world, just like endo. And um, it's often misdiagnosed as IBS, just like endo. So the likeliness that your GP knows what it is and knows how to treat it and knows how to test for it, or at least knows how to do a proper test and knows 
exactly the you know the best antibiotics for it is quite low I definitely haven't yet come across any GPs um, who have known what it is with my clients when we've tested positive but that doesn't mean there aren't any so generally this is going to be a home test you all don't get delivered at home um, in the US um, again you can order it and then do it at home but you will get need to get a prescription for the type of test that um, I'm going to advise you to get today so you might have a GI doctor or a GP or you know primary care practitioner who can order the test for you and, and wants to order the same the test for you but uh, the concern is it might not be the best test um, in my experience so far most of the doctors who have been able to order a test don't order the best one so um, you will hear more about that in a minute so there's not like a perfect test yet, um, but the current, be the current best test is a breath test. You can have a colonoscopy and I think it what it does is, um, you know, measures the bacteria, the culture, but obviously it's not a pleasant, a pleasant um, procedure and I don't think that many people do it. The breath test is what all of the SIBO specialists are using. A stool test can't diagnose SIBO. Um, like a GI map, it can't diagnose SIBO, but um, it can give you some indication that it's there. Um, there are a couple of strains of bacteria and a couple of like imbalances um, that if they are present, indicate SIBO might be going on. Um, and that was really the final like push I needed to be like, no, 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 this is SIBO. Um, when I got my GI map back, there are a couple of imbalances and a couple of things like low secretory IgA, which is the mucosal lining on your small intestine, like barrier and um, lining rather. And that was really low in me. And that gets depleted with SIBO. Low stomach acid, low digestive enzymes are all signs that SIBO is present. And yeah, um, bacterial imbalances too. So if you've got a GI map, um, done you would get the or your practitioner would get the GI map interpretive guide and that gives you um, a breakdown of what it means and um, they write there like this you know indicates SIBO might be present and I've seen that pattern with um, my clients as well when they've had a GI map um, I actually don't really the GI map's expensive now I just go for the SIBO test first because I mean, everyone's been positive. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so then, but we've done a GI map in a couple of cases where we thought something else was present, like maybe candida overgrowth. And um, their labs have come back with all of those signs that SIBO is present. So um, it does correlate, but you couldn't, you couldn't diagnose SIBO with a stool test. And I wouldn't advise you to do so because you need to know the type of SIBO you have in order to treat it effectively. So um, the SIBO breath test, it measures the gases that are given off by the SIBO. Now, if you remember um, my last episodes about this, the SIBO is bacteria. Okay, so it's your normal bacteria growing in abnormal amounts in an abnormal location. Should be in your large intestine, but it's in your small intestine and it shouldn't be there. And it's usually in very large quantities most of the time. It could be mild. It's bacteria and archaea. 
archaea is another microorganism. And they give off gases when they eat your food. Um, fermentation, that's, you know, that's what fermentation is. So they ferment food, they give off gases. And so the breath test measures the gases and it measures the gas in parts per million. And it measures only hydrogen and methane SIBO. There isn't a test for hydrogen sulfide SIBO yet, but we can, in some cases, look for patterns that indicate the presence of hydrogen sulfide type SIBO in this test. But this is like officially, this is the test for methane and hydrogen. It measures it in parts per million, and that gives us an indication of how much SIBO is present by the amount of gas that's made. So ideally, the test is three hours long with 10 test tubes with a lactulose solution. It's it's called a substrate, um, I think medically, but I like to use solution because I just feel like it's more accessible word. Two hours, a two hour test is an option. A glucose solution is an option and a eight test tube test is an option. So what you, you know, let me take you through how it works. So you do a prep diet the day before the test and this prep diet is a low carb. I'm going to take you through the prep diet in a bit. And then you do a 12th hour fast overnight. And then when you wake up, you do an hour, you wait an hour before you do the test. The test itself, you get this bag that's connected to like um, a tube you breathe in. And then the bag has like a needle coming out of it. It's not a sharp needle, so don't worry. There's a needle coming out of it that goes down, it faces down towards the floor. And then you get test tubes. And what you would do is breathe into that bag. And as you're breathing you push the test tube up. I'm actually doing them, um, I'm, I'm showing this with my hand, hands, which makes no sense because no one can see it. Um, and you push the test tube up and the gas is collected into that test tube. So the test tube has like a rubber cover, a rubber kind of lid. And when you push it up through the needle, the needle pierces it and the needle, you know, allows the gas to empty into that test tube and then when you remove the test tube that rubber just automatically seals back up so um I definitely wanted to let you guys know that because when I did it the first time no one told me that the rubber seals back up so I did my first one and then I was like oh my god it hadn't it didn't pierce like it must have not gone through so um then I did it in the mirror and made sure the needle went in and through the test tube and I was like oh it did go through it just cleverly seals immediately back up afterwards so um so you will breathe into the test tube um I will put a video to this in the show notes of how to do it um you don't take a deep breath you just take a normal breath in and then you breathe out into the bag you push the test tube up. And this is your baseline test. What that means is we need to see what your gas levels are before you drink the solution. So then once we've got that baseline test, you would immediately drink the solution. So the solution is, is either lactulose or glucose. Now what this is, is a solution of um, sugars essentially that feed or carbohydrates that feed the bacteria, feed the SIBO so that they ferment. So the purpose of the prep test, 
that PrEP diet is to basically essentially starve the bacteria for a day so that all of your gases go down so that when you do that baseline test, your gases are, you know, low to zero and that allows us to see how much your gas rises over the um, period of the test, the duration of the test. So you do the baseline test, you um, you get sort of like a packet of the solution of the substrate, and that's usually in like this little plastic cup with a seal on it, almost like a bigger version of those, um, you know, those like little capsule milks that you get in like hotels, like that, but bigger. You empty that into a glass of water and then you drink it down in one. Um, and then 20 minutes later, you take your second test. Um, you label it as, as your second test. 20 minutes after that, you take your third and so on until you reach three hours. And that would be um, a three hour test with 10 tubes. Um, so that's the ideal scenario. The reason why there's sort of like no perfect test yet is because of the difference between lactulose and glucose. So the lactulose substrate stays in the whole intestine. It's not absorbed by the body. So it's just there for the SIBO to ferment. So um, it will last the duration of your small intestine and your large intestine. So that means like it's, it's pretty accurate. If you have SIBO somewhere in your small intestine, it's going to pick up on it. Um, but then there is a chance of a false positive because, of course, when it comes to your large intestine, the bacteria should be present there. Um, so the at least the hydrogen-making um, bacteria should be there. So you might accidentally have a positive for hydrogen when actually it's just your large intestine. These tests don't create a diagnosis in isolation. They are coupled with... Um, your medical history, your symptoms, um, maybe any kind of signs of like root causes, like do you have adhesions around the gut? Have you had food poisoning? So um, a skilled practitioner would in theory be able to identify whether or not that it was a false positive. But um, in, you know, in my experience, in most cases that in, in all of the tests I've seen, I haven't had a false positive um, with lactulose. And in an ideal scenario, you might even get a little um, indication of when the difference between the small intestine and the large intestine. So you're, on your um, test results, you're going to have two sort of versions. The graph along the, bo along the bottom measures the time and along the top measures the level of gas. So your so say you did your baseline and your baseline was zero, and then two hours in your gas peaked to sixty, and then um, okay no 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 let's say ninety minutes it peaked to sixty, and then at one hundred and twenty minutes there was a dip, and then there was another shooting up of your gas after that dip so it would look like two mountain peaks that dip indicates a transition from the small intestine to the large intestine i'm not quite sure why that that dip happens but it does and that shows the transition in time 
it doesn't happen for every test. There isn't always a dip, but the dip is nice. It's it's like a reassurance to be like, yeah, okay, here's the difference. We can definitely see that um, this is where the gas is in the small intestine. Um, the glucose, oh, one other thing. For lactulose in the US, you need a prescription from a doctor, which I am discovering is quite difficult to get hold of. Um, so I recommend you try to find a SIBO doctor in the US to order your test for you. And if you go to SIBOinfo.com, which is a website of my tutor, Dr. Seebecker, um, she has a resources section and a link to a lab that you can call and they will tell you what SIBO doctors there are in your area. Um, but the lactulose um, test is the one that Dr. Seebecker prefers, the one that I prefer, um, and I'll explain the glucose and then you'll see why. So the glucose um, substrate, the body can absorb it and it's it's absorbed in the first three feet, one to three feet of the small intestine. Now the small intestine is on average 22 feet long. So if your SIBO is further down the small intestine, then you're going to get a false negative. Um, it reacts well with SIBO. So the SIBO is, you know, the SIBO is always going to eat the glucose. So you're, you would get a good, strong reaction if it was present in that first one to three feet. But if you're, you know, if you don't have the SIBO there, then it's going to come back as negative. So that's why um, Dr. Seebecker prefers lactulose because if you were to do the glucose and it came back negative if if I was working with you I would want to do a second test with lactulose to be sure and they're 160 pounds so it's not um you know it's expensive um in an ideal world you'd do two tests but um because that's not realistic for everyone I prefer to go with the lactulose now um Dr. Seebecker says that her, you know, her various colleagues, other SIBO experts, some of them use lactulose, uh, sorry, some of them use glucose and they have really good results. Um, I wonder whether if they got a negative, they would test for lactulose. I'd like to see what they said about that, um, knowing the risk. But I think if you're doing it at home and you're doing it yourself and you are, you don't, you know, have a lot of money to do the test in the first place, especially given that the treatment isn't cheap, I personally would stick with a lactulose test. So that's kind of the first complication. The second one is a time frame. With your, your small intestine, the substrate is supposed to make its way through the small intestine by two hours. Um, but we know, you know, the number one reason why SIBO develops is due to slow gut motility. So if you remember back to my last episode on this, that is there's something called the migrating motor complex and that essentially moves through old food and bacteria out of the small intestine after you've eaten and it's traveled through into the large intestine it starts to do some housekeeping and it's just this wave motion pushes everything out and makes sure um make sure makes sure that the small intestine is um clean and usually damage has happened to that and so it becomes stagnant and the bacteria builds up and um, often that damage is caused by uh, food poisoning. Or there's a structural problem 
which interferes with the migrating motor complex, like the wave. So if you've got an adhesion and there's a kink in your small intestine, sure, the wave might take the bacteria so far, but then it can't like fully, you know, continue, can't complete because there's like a kink or there's an obstruction, such as an adhesion or an endogrowth. And then um, the bacteria sort of gets held in that area and builds up. So given that slow gut motility is the number one cause of SIBO, and so we know the majority of patients with SIBO have a slow gut motility, so the likeliness that the substrate or the solution is going to get through in the two hours, um, in my opinion, is pretty slim. So to cut off the test at two hours or 2.5 hours means that you might miss SIBO entirely and also even if you don't miss a SIBO even if you see um the if you even if you see the rise you won't know how bad it gets especially with methane methane SIBO which is actually not classically SIBO anymore they've renamed it to oh gosh intestinal Intestine, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, I think is a new name. And that's because um, SIBO stands for small bacteri- bacterial overgrowth, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, but methane is um, caused by archaea. And that archaea can also grow in the large intestine and it's not supposed to be there either. So this is why it's intestinal um, meth- methanogen overgrowth. It could be in the whole in any of the air, any of the gut. So in that case, we need the full three hours um, to accurately record the SIBO. So, you know, if you suspect methane, then um, you need to test it. And just thinking about it, I don't think I've got, um, maybe I've got one client. Yeah, I've got one client who only has hydrogen type SIBO. The rest will have both. So, um so that's something to consider. And then, of course, if you've got slow gut motility, then um, your SIBO, your hydrogen might not rise in that first two hours. And I've seen many um, examples of this with um, in my training with Dr. Alison Seebecker. I've seen the graphs where the SIBO hasn't been traced until the third hour. And if it was cut off you know, we, we cut it off, we just do a demonstration, cut off that final, um, you know, hour or half hour, and um, you would have missed SIBO entirely. Um, I'm not sure, I can't remember when, when mine starts to rise, but um, I think it's just on that cusp. But so you would miss it entirely. So um, if you have, you know, a really big endo belly, you have a lot of signs of SIBO, and you've had a test and it was negative, check your test results and check with your doctor. Did you test with glucose? And was it only a three-hour test? And also, obviously, with the test tubes, if you did a three-hour test, you would get 10 test tubes. If you did a two-hour test, you would get eight. So that's the difference there. So clearly, like, I, what's the point in doing a 2.5 hour test or a two hour test just do you know just do the three hours and let's just be sure because otherwise at some point you know I'm sure if you're getting tested there's a strong suspicion it's there and um with endometriosis I actually read in Nicole Jardim's book fix your period 
um, that one study found 80% of endometriosis patients had SIBO. And um, as I said, everyone that I've tested for SIBO so far has been positive. Um, and the signs have been really pretty much clear as day. So, um, you know, if you suspect it, then I think you're, you have a high chance of it actually being there. Um, so just do a test that's going to be reliable. I will put in the show notes the company that I like to use in the UK. Um, I really like to use Smart SIBO Test. Um, I really like the way they lay out the results, how they explain it. Um, their mentor is Dr. C. Becker. So, um, yeah, I just like to use them. And in other places around the world, um, Alison has a resources page on find it to help you find tests in your country. So um, I'll link to that as well. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. BU make natural, organic products to help us to manage our periods, sleep well, and achieve a greater sense of well-being. Their product line is expanding all the time with just amazing products that I, I love. I'm so happy that this company exists because they're natural for a start and they really focus on menstrual well-being and that's just so important to me. They have a CBD balm, CBD drops, CBD sprays um, that can all help you to manage your um, menstrual pain. They have patches which you can use during the beginning of your period and the lead up to your period to soothe pain and the endometriosis community love them. There's also the sleep pillow mist. So if you're really trying to improve your sleep or you're trying to reduce levels of anxiety when you're sleeping, the sleep pillow mist is just full of soothing essential oils to help with that. They have a menstrual cup now and a menstrual cup foaming cleanser. Um, so if you can wear menstrual cups, then I totally recommend BU. Their cup is made with um, 100% soft medical grade silicone. There's no PBA, no latex, no dye. As I said, all of their products are natural. The company are really committed to women's rights, menstrual health and good quality products. And I mean, obviously I know them personally because they're my sponsors and they're just a lovely company to support. So if you're interested in having a look at their range, the link is in my show notes. Um, I would love to hear what you think and how you get on with them. Be you. Start soothing period cramps a natural way. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis diet grocery list. This download gives you basically a lowdown of what I eat every week on um, a monthly basis and my personal take on the endometriosis diet. It's not a protocol, set protocol that you have to or should follow, but it is here to serve you, give you inspiration and help you see what eating for endometriosis might look like in real life. It's there for you to kind of take inspiration from and help you put your own approach together. To download it, just head to my show notes and follow the link to get your free copy. So the prep diet, as I mentioned, um, the whole point of that is to reduce 
the bacteria for a few days so that when you take that solution, um, you know that the fermentation is, is from that. If you are constipated, um, which is a symptom of SIBO, um, then you would need to do the prep diet for two days. So essentially the prep, prep diet is, you know, low to zero carbs. So um, it's ideally meat, eggs, fish, um, some fats. Um, so I think like a little olive oil is fine. Uh, water and maybe black tea or maybe black coffee. Um, now, most test companies say you can also have some white rice or white wheat. Now, Dr. Seebecker trained us to um, see that this could be quite problematic because the theory is, so if you think about like blood sugar, right, we say to stay, you know, be careful with refined carbs like white rice and white bread because they are broken down very quickly in the gut. And so um, are absorbed through the gut wall quickly and turn into sugar very quickly. So there's, there's, that's the kind of same theory here that the SIBO shouldn't really have time to ferment it because your body should absorb it quite quickly. But we know people have slow digestion, um, slow uh, low digestive enzymes um, and slow gut motility. So it's quite a jump to assume that everyone could break down that bread quick enough and that everyone could tolerate it. Some people can eat white bread and um, white rice and not feel any reaction. Other people can. So if you're the type of person who you know, if you have some white rice or you have some white bread, you blow up, then it's likely that the SIBO is eaten. Yeah. So um, if that's the case, then that will skew your results it will mess up your results what will happen is the baseline reading will have gas in it will have a it will have a high reading and we know that that's an improper test and so you would have to do it again and also even those people who can you know tolerate that rice and it doesn't seem like the SIBO is eating it if you have a lot of it then it's likely that you will have a reaction. So sometimes people just have too many carbohydrates and that can um, mess up the test results too. So I think what Dr. C. Becker says is to only have the white rice or white bread if you know that you don't react to it. Um, and that's the information that I pass on to my clients. And most of them choose not to have the white rice or white bread because um, they just don't want to run that risk of messing up the test results. Oh, you can also have a little bit of salt and pepper. Um, and meat broth might also be okay. Um, and what I mean by meat broth is not broth from bone or broth from vegetables because bone contains carbohydrates and those carbohydrates are released into the broth and vegetables are obviously carbohydrates. So they do the same. So, um, But meat broth um, might be fine. And I actually think a couple of companies advise that as an option too. So <laughs> if you cave and the prep diet's difficult and you end up eating carbs, it will show up on a test. So um and you and you will have to do it again. So just be aware of that. Obviously, if you have a history of an eating disorder and this is triggering, 
um, then you would need to discuss that with your practitioner and decide whether this is the right time for you to do the SIBO test. Um, and make sure you have support if you are going to do that. So if you are vegan, so obviously I'm vegan, well, I'm not really vegan now because I've been trying to eat some eggs since, um, since I did that horrible, um, elimination diet because I'm not, I mean, just because I haven't been absorbing nutrients very well and eggs are nutrient dense, I was hoping maybe I would be able to try and better absorb some nutrients from, um, animal protein in the form of eggs. Um, I don't know if I am, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to eat those at the moment. So I just ate eggs all day. Um, I had 12 eggs in one day, obviously uh, eating eggs all day is not vegan. So it's sort of a vegetarian version. Um, but what Dr. C. Becker advises is that you, if you were vegan, you could either water fast you could have two thirds of a cup of plain firm tofu, not silkum. Um, you could have some white rice and some white bread. And you could possibly eat a little, very, very small amount of low FODMAP fruit and veg. But obviously you do have the risk of um, having too many carbs with that. If you're veggie, again, you could have eggs, white rice, um, wheat, hard aged cheese, and just like with the vegan one, um, a small amount of low FODMAP fruit and veg. Um, oh, and if you were uh, diabetic, this could be quite challenging to do. You know, not having any fruit or carbs, uh, fruit or carbs, not having any carbs could um, really affect your blood sugar. Um, so for someone who was diabetic, you could add small amounts of fruit and veg too, and definitely do that under the guidance of a practitioner to make sure that you're not, um, you know, having any hypos. Um, so that's how you do the prep diet. So now I'll talk about, um, how to interpret the results and, you know, ideally you would be doing this with someone who could read the test. Um, but, you could read it yourself in theory, but you couldn't get like a proper diagnosis until you took it to a practitioner. There are sort of two test ranges that I go by. There's now an official um, breath test consensus, so like an official guide by um, yeah North the North American Breath Test Consensus, I think it's called, and um, it's quite recent. I think it's just part of the I think. Alison said it was past couple of years because before it was sort of every lab for itself and they determined what was a positive or negative test. So before I dive into that, um, I'm going to recap on what your test results will look like. So you will have a table and you'll have a graph. So the graph um, will have three lines. One is going to show the um, hydrogen, one is going to show the methane and one is going to show the combined gases on the graph. As I said, along the bottom, um, there is the time. Time will be along the bottom. So one to three hours, you know, zero to three hours. And then the gas is going to be running up along the side vertically. And then, um, so the measurement of the gas will be plotted on the graph with each sort of, um, 20 minute, you know, time. So, at 
20 minutes, you'll have the baseline and at 20 minutes there will be another um, mark and then so on and then they will draw a line um, to show you the pattern. On the table, you'll have a, a table with columns for hydrogen, methane and combined and um, down, then you'll, you know, the first column will be the time and then obviously running across underneath hydrogen, methane and combined, you'll have the number of gas for the um, time. So at 20 minutes, you might have 16 parts per million of hydrogen. The um, gas will say like 100 ppm for parts per million. So the North American um, guidance is you're looking for a rise. So your baseline is your starting point. So your baseline might be zero. Um, with methane, there can be a high baseline. So just don't worry if you've got a high baseline for methane. So um, you're starting from the baseline. And for hydrogen, you're looking for a rise from the baseline of 20 parts per million by 90 minutes. So that's um, an hour and a half. So if you started at zero, 20 parts per million of hydrogen in 90 minutes would be a positive. For methane, you would be looking for 10 or more parts per million, including the baseline across the whole 180 minutes. Now, Dr. C. Becker has a similar criteria, her own criteria that she's developed after working with patients for years and years. I think she's worked with over a thousand patients. Um, and this is the guidelines that she has developed. And I tend to refer to them. It's, it's really similar. There's just one kind of, there's one or two differences. Dr. C. Becker's guidance um, is the hydrogen to be 20 or more without a rise. It doesn't need to be a rise within the first 120 minutes, the first two hours. So it doesn't have to rise from the baseline by 20. It just has to get above 20 or get to 20 or more within that first 120 minutes. Um, as long as the baseline isn't the highest point. If your baseline is the highest gas reading, then within that 120 minutes, then that's an improper breath test. And that means that you've had too many carbs beforehand or, or something's wrong. What she says is that um, if you get a, if you get that reading in the 90 minutes and that's a stronger diagnosis. And if you get the rise of 20 parts per million, that's also a stronger diagnosis. So with methane, she, um, instead of 12, she requires it to reach 10 within 180 minutes. Um, and if you have constipation, which is a, um, you know, very, very common with methane type SIBO, it's a key indicator of methane, um, then it's three to nine parts per million. And that is, I can't remember who came up with that, um, this was the result of various experts. Um, it might have been Dr. Pimentel and their studies. And um, they found that you could confirm methane SIBO from free if you had constipation. Um, she feels that um, 
eight, definitely you can confirm that's methane. I think without, with or without the constipation. Um, five, she's pretty sure. Three, she said like she would really need to see the constipation there. So um, the test result, the test that I use, um, they say it on there, a measure of three, if you have constipation, is a positive methane reading. Um, and most, it seems that most specialists adhere to that. And I think they've sort of tried to campaign um, with the North American SIBO breath test consensus. And they haven't changed the guidance yet, but um, it might change in in a couple of years. So if your methane results are low, but you have a lot of constipation, then that could be a positive. Now the combined um, gases, that's just for um, if uh, the single gases, so the methane or the hydrogen, don't reach high enough for you to accurately record uh, or interpret your results. And it would be a positive if the combined was above 15 parts per million. Now, here's the interesting bit. Hydrogen sulfide SIBO, in some cases, I think it's 30% of people with hydrogen sulfide type SIBO have something called flatline. And what that is, is when your hydrogen is below six parts per million for the entire duration of the test, and your methane is under three parts per million for the um, whole three hours of the test. And what that indicates is that the bacteria that makes hydrogen sulfide is eating up all of the food and making hydrogen sulfide type SIBO, um, hydrogen sulfide gas. So, um, and I think it's also because, oh God, I can't remember in terms of chemistry, but it's also like the amount of hydrogen and methane that it takes to make hydrogen sulfide gas. So if the gas is being released, it's then being converted to make hydrogen sulfide. So the hydrogen sulfide basically takes up all of the um, methane and the hydrogen. And you might find if you dealt with the hydrogen sulfide, I wonder if you would then start to see those numbers rise, um, which is the case with um, methane. So if you have, if you just had a methane positive test result, for example, then you might um, do the treatment, kill the methane, do your test again, but then find that your hydrogen levels are rising. And that's because it takes four hydrogens to make one methane. So if you then um, kill off the bacteria that's making the methane, then you've got hydrogen left over. So then you start to see those rising. Now, there isn't an official test for hydrogen sulfide type SIBO yet, but it is in development. And if you suspected hydrogen sulfide SIBO, I think it would be really ideal to work with someone who was specialised, um, who could help you to identify it, because it's only 30%, I believe, of um, SIBO, hydrogen sulfide type SIBO patients who have that flatline pattern. Now, your test reading will determine the type of treatment you do. If you do, if you have um, hydrogen 
or if you have methane or you have hydrogen sulfide type SIBO, your treatment is going to vary a little bit. And um, if you try to treat methane with just a hydrogen approach, it's likely your methane is not going to go. Um, and also you need to know the number, how high that number reaches in order for you to know how many treatment rounds you need. So I'm going to dive into treatment um, in another episode, but treatment wise, um, your options are antibiotics, antimicrobials, or um, something called the elemental diet. Now, um, the success of these are measured also in like parts per million. So the eradication of the gas then indicates how, um, you know, how much SIBO has been killed. So um, on average, antibiotics and antimicrobials reduce um, the gases by 30 parts per million per round. So if you had like 70, you know, your, your highest reading, so you would you would um, take your highest reading of hydrogen and methane and that's what you're trying to reduce. And so say your highest reading was like 100, let's say it was 100, that's severe. Um, if you had severe SIBO and it was 100, you would need a good couple of rounds of antimicrobials or antibiotics to actually get that gas fully down. The elemental diet reduces on average by 70 parts per million so you would only need like two rounds of elemental diet but you might combine it you could do like one round of the elemental diet and then do um one round of antibiotics for example but it's always advisable that you retest at the end of your treatment to actually make sure it's gone because if it's not gone you're going to come off the treatment you're going to you know, hopefully you'll do preventative steps afterwards, which is a whole other thing, uh, which we'll do um, like an episode on. Um, but you need to do this prevention steps, these prevention steps for three to six months post treatment. And um, if your SIBO is still there, even if it's a small amount, it's just going to multiply and grow. So you need to make sure that it's gone. Um, you might have, uh, I think what Dr. Seebecker aims for is 90% symptom reduction, but we want that, that eradication of the SIBO. So it's always best to test the, to do a retest. So ideally you're doing two retests, uh, doing two tests and you need to know how high that, C, that um, SIBO reading goes. So you know how long you need to do the treatment. My treatment is going to take a good while. It's going to take half a year, if not three quarters of a year to do. And unless I do the elemental diet, which is why I'm thinking of taking October off to do that, because I don't want to be doing the elemental diet whilst I'm coaching. And yes, so you need to know how high your SIBO gets and you need to know the type of SIBO that you have in order to correctly treat it. And it's why I get really frustrated with doctors who do a two hour test and they're like, oh, yeah, you've got some hydrogen. Here's some rifaximin. Um, one round of that should do it. no. I've got a client whose hydrogen levels reached 117, I think. And her doctor gave her two weeks of rifaximin and then that's an antibiotic. Um, that's really successful for SIBO. And then sent her on her way and told her she should be fine. And she had so many symptoms. And of course, you know, she probably just got taken down to, you know, 80, 90 
And um, so she still had severe, severe SIBO. Um, so yeah, so we did another test and she was positive and, um, we are undergoing that treatment now. So, um, that's just an example to see, you know, how it can sort of go wrong if you're not, if you're not talking to a SIBO, like a specialist, someone who knows what they're doing, or you're just not aware that you need to know exactly the type of SIBO you have and exactly the number that you have in terms of gas. So that's it really for this um, episode. I'm going to talk about the antibiotics, the elemental diet and the antimicrobials in another episode, probably with Dr. C. Becker, because she's coming on. Um, And then we will also do an episode on preventative steps as well. Um, So I hope this was useful. I'm going to put links to um, my favorite lab um, in the UK in the show notes. I'm going to put a link to Dr. C. Becker's testing guidance. I'm going to put a link to um, where to find a SIBO doctor and where to find a SIBO lab test in your country or area. I really hope this is helpful. I'm going to go because I feel a sneeze and fit coming on. Um, I'm currently recording this on Friday. Tomorrow is the 4th of July. So um, in the UK, everything is opening up. I'm not going to go for anything to eat because I just think it's my nearest town is Canterbury and it's going to be heaving with drunk students, I imagine. So, um, yeah, I think I'm going to wait. But um, if you're going out, enjoy yourselves. And um, yeah, I hope you all have a lovely weekend and you are safe and well. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. 